those of you who are new with us, um, you know, just a quick get to know you. I mean, we are a people who love Jesus. Uh, we want to know him, we want to follow him, and we want to serve him. Uh, we don't expect and we don't proclaim that we're perfect or we're a perfect church. Um, uh, we, but we, we know a perfect God who perfectly loves us, and he is making us perfect. Uh, he's doing it, not us. And so we seek to know him, we seek to look at his word, we seek to apply that, uh, to follow him, to walk along with him, and then we seek to, to utilize our lives uh, for his glory, to, to leverage what he, the gifts that he has given us so that he would be known. And so part of that is on Sundays we gather and we sing, uh, and we sing because it's, it's good to sing praises to the Lord. God inhabits the praises of his people. God encourages and uplifts his people when we praise him. We look at his word because he teaches us, he molds us, and he shapes us. And we have been in this book called Haggai, which is a book, if you don't know where that's at, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, and if you don't know where in the Old Testament that is, you go to the New Testament, starts with Matthew, then you turn backwards. So you've got Malachi, uh, Zechariah, Haggai. And, uh, and that's, that's where you'll, you'll find Haggai. And Haggai is this really interesting book because it's a book that's, uh, that's speaking to God's people when they're coming back out of exile. And they have a lot of work to do. Uh, he's rescued his people out of Persia and he's sent them back to Jerusalem to rebuild his temple. And there's a lot of good stuff here. A lot of stuff that speaks to us today. Um, how many of you have ever started a project before? And then once starting that project, you went, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I'm not alone, I guess, you know. Man, I feel like that happens all the time. I don't know if that's just projects are too difficult or I'm making poor decisions. Um, I remember um, first time I got COVID, May 2021, back when they used to lock you down and tie you up and make sure you don't go out of your, your house for two weeks. And, uh, and I, I didn't, wasn't really that, I was sick, but it was just fatigue. Um, whatever strain was out there, I don't know. But I got fatigue, and I just felt like I'd lay down my bed. As long as I was laying in my bed, everything was fine. As soon as I got up out of my bed, I wanted to fall over on the floor. It's like all the energy I just built up just drained right out of me. Well, this time, uh, my wife um, had some good friends who uh, were willing to go buy some chickens. Uh, and bring them to our house because we wanted to get into the chicken business. Um, not Chick-fil-A, uh, but the raising of ones that produce eggs. Uh, and, you know, quarantine seemed like a good time to do that. And so she wanted to buy, you know, a chicken coop. And uh, I did not want to spend $600 on a chicken coop for eggs that I could buy for $1.98. Now, looking back, maybe it would have been a good investment. Um, <laughs> So I was like, you know what, I got scrap wood, I got time. Uh, so I, with a little chicken scratch on a piece of paper, designed a chicken coop and um, I went out to the garage and started working on this thing. And after two days and screwing together like eight boards, because I was so exhausted every time I picked up something, I was like, oh, I gotta get to take a break. 
I gave up. We're like, we're done with this. We're going to give these chickens to someone else. And <laughs> we gave them to a friend, a friend of ours, which uh, ended up being a good thing because out of the six chickens we had, three of them were roosters. So, um, <laughs> I think all of us can identify with having a situation like that. You started with some passion. You wanted to do something. You're passionate about it, and you just come, man, I, I can't do this. This is too much. Well, the people of God were having that same kind of feeling. Uh, if you were with us last week, God, we, God came in. He, he revived his people. Right? He, he encouraged his people. God's people were in a land, the land, the land of promise, back in the holy city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple of God. And they had come, and they were excited. They cleared the foundation. They built an altar. The priests put their garments back on, and they were celebrating the Lord. And then they got discouraged and stopped and got off track. And then God comes and he sends this man, Haggai, and he comes and he speaks to them and he encourages them and said, hey, guys, what are you doing? Consider what you're doing. Change your perspective. Get back on mission. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And the people responded. They heard. They obeyed. They feared the Lord. And the Lord revived them. I'm with you. And he stirred up their spirits and he created passion within them. And almost immediately they get back to work. And then, 27-odd days later, three and a half weeks or so, Haggai comes again. The Lord of the Lord comes to the people again, and they're discouraged again. And this is what he says. In the seventh month, it's chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jezedek, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jezedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenants that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens so the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Of hosts. You see, God's people were excited for God's work the second time already, right? They came in from Persia, excited for God's work, got to work, got discouraged. God calls back to his people, and they get excited for God's work again, and then they get discouraged again. And God knows that's what's happening. He knows what's going on in his people's life. And our compassionate, good God encourages his people 
He comes to them. He speaks to them. He brings encouragement when they are depressed and anxious. When they're looking at what's in, in front of them as an impossibility. Right? And this is not really unreasonable for these people to think. It's 50,000 people who came. And some of these people, we know from Ezra, were there when and had seen the temple in its former glory. Or at least most of them had heard stories of seeing the temple in its former glory. Back in Ezra 3.12, it says this. Many, this is right after there's this huge celebration, right? Everyone's celebrating. But it says this. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. Right? This is not tears of joy they were crying. This is tears of sadness. What had happened? What have we lost? How are we ever going to rebuild what God had done before? I mean, Solomon created a wonder of the world. I mean, the whole place plated in gold, just arrayed with treasure upon treasure. So much so that it was sacked twice. Let's bring all the treasure out. Right? They're, they're looking and they're coming to a place where they know what they're supposed to do, but they don't understand how they're going to make it like it was. And not only that, Cyrus asked them to even expand it some. Right? In the decree of Cyrus, Ezra 6.3, if you're interested and you're taking notes, Ezra 6.3, Ezra calls this place to be about 90 feet high and 90 feet wide. This massive building at that time, right? They don't have cranes. They don't have bulldozers. They don't have skid steers. They don't have tractors. They got manpower and some ox probably. And they don't have a lot of money. They have some that came in, but the three million or so that they were given is nothing in comparison to what was there before. And so, even in Ezra, they're discouraged, and that discouragement continued. And then when they're re-encouraged again, that discouragement came back in. Right? They started, they're excited, they're hitting the, their hammer, hitting the nails. How are we going to get this done? This is going to be nothing like that chicken coop I drove. And the people were rightfully discouraged. Right? And this, this happens all the time in life. We look backwards at what was and we try to create what was to what is now. And we can be discouraged because what was was so awesome. And we have a tendency to elevate the reality of what actually happened because we have this nostalgic viewpoint of what was. Right? And throughout church history, the church has done this. Right? 
We look at what's going on in our church, we're like, man, if we could only just be like the church in Acts, right? Where all of them believed they were together and they had all things in common. They were sharing, there wasn't infighting, there weren't personality disagreements. They loved each other. Not only that, that day by day after attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Man, what, why can't we get back to that? All while forgetting 1 Corinthians existed. A church that's full of struggle and pain. Full of people just missing it. Full of disunity. Right? We, we look back and we think, okay, well, what about the Reformation? Man, if we could just go back to the time of Luther, what an amazing time in the church. Justification by grace through faith. Man, people are come, becoming saved. They're getting broken out of the bondage of the Catholic system that made it so that they had to work to earn a salvation before God and not even know if they're actually going to receive that because if they mess up sometime right before they die, they may end up in purgatory. And now I've got to spend all my money and I've got to crawl up these stairs praying for these, my relatives to get them out of this place. And Luther comes like, No. For by grace you have been saved, not as a work of your own. It's, it's grace. And God's reviving his people. He's like, man, this word has been hidden from you guys for a long time. You know what? I'm going to spend my rest of my days translating it so that you can read it. And you can know the truth. And you can have this. And you can... You can actually know God and be in relationship with him. You don't need someone else to tell you about it. You can read it for yourself. Man, if we could just get back to that time, you know, when the bubonic plague was going around. <laughs> where they were literally setting people on fire for printing the word of God. where there was no indoor plumbing. We think of even today, right? If we could just be like the American church or the, the, the revivals or the, the great awakenings in, the, in Europe and in, in, in America. We just had the George Whitfields and the John Wesleys and the Jonathan Edwards and the George Muellers and the Hudson Taylors. Man, if we could just live in that time and that would be great, but there's no way we can do that again. Not while seeing the hardship that those men went through in their life. I mean, Jonathan Edwards was kicked out of his church for refusing to give communion to non-believers who were trying to take it as a joke. We even go back to like what. What if we could just be like we were before in our heyday? Hundreds of people coming through the door. All this stuff, like, we can't ever get back to then. 
And we get discouraged thinking that God is not able to do again and grow again and create again what he desires in our life through us. We want to experience someone else's struggle and work and the benefit and the blessing that came out of that and not actually work with our own hands in the midst of the trouble. And when God revives us and calls us to work, it is easy to get discouraged into thinking there is no way possible for God to actually do something like that through me. If only things were they were they were the way they were before. I had a wedding yesterday and a rehearsal dinner. I was reminded by someone in a speech. Old adage of truth. Comparison is the enemy of joy. And we look back and compare to today to what was, it immediately removes the joy from our life and brings in discouragement. I mean, depression, essentially, in its base nature, is rooted in the past. I'm depressed about what didn't or did happen before. My mind is living back in that era and not in the present. And God is coming to his people knowing exactly what they are going through, identifying with it, not denying it, but accepting it. God doesn't expect his people to live in a fantasy world. There's nothing in Scripture that would ever say that you become a Christian and life is easy and, and, you know, skittles and rainbows or whatever terminology you want to say. In fact, it's the opposite. When I choose to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I am choosing a life of dying to myself. I am choosing to give up my preferences and priorities up for his. I am choosing to walk a path of rejection in many ways. They hated me first. They will hate you. I am choosing to follow my Lord into works that he's prepared for me beforehand And it's difficult. I'm choosing, in a sense, to become a target for the prince of the power of the air who's at work right now in the sons of disobedience. I am choosing to walk a different path than from the rest of the world. And there's difficulty there. Not only externally, but internally. I have to deal with my own brokenness. I have to deal with the areas of my life that I say that I am a Christian. I know what God says about me, but what I'm doing doesn't line up with what that is. And then I have to actually be honest and authentic about that to find freedom in it. That's difficult. 
And God knows all of this. He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He knows exactly what's going on. And he says to his people, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's speaking knowing of the men who sat there weeping over what was and what wasn't. He's looking at the ones going, man, how is this possible that we are going to rebuild God's temple here today like it was before? It was incredible. We're not skilled carpenters, craftsmen. We're a bunch of exiles. Who not only are we called to build this thing, but the people who hate us and want us dead are still around us. How in the world is this going to work? See, God knows the difficulty of our life. He doesn't pass it over. He recognizes it. But then in the midst of it, he calls to encourage and uplift his people. So what does he say? Yet now, in the middle of your struggle, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of the difficulty, and your questioning of whether or not you're going to be able to complete what I've asked you to complete. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, O remnant of the people, and get to work. God calls to his people and calls them to be confident Right? That same word, be strong, is also used to be confident. And this is the, God's pattern. Right? He's done this all the time. You, you read that, you should immediately think of Deuteronomy. Or Moses saying, be strong, all you people, because you're about to inherit the, word, the land that the Lord has given to you. You should immediately think back and think of Joshua. Right? Have I not commanded you, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Have confidence, Joshua. Right? David said the same thing to Solomon. Did you know this? The same thing to Solomon when Solomon was charged with building the first temple. First Chronicles 28.30. And David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And in the same moment, in the same anxiety, the same difficulty, God is speaking again to his people. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Have confidence. Have confidence in who I am. Have confidence in who I've called you to be. Have confidence that I am with you and I am faithful to complete what I've called you to. Be strong. 
And not only does he say be strong, he says fear not. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. God, this is God compassionately coming to his people who are dealing with a struggle and separation and, and breaking in their, in their own hearts about what he's called them to do. To do. Wait, they're depressed about what had happened and how they're not able to do it, and they're anxious about what they're going to be able to do in the, in the future. And God deals with both of those things. Have confidence, be strong, I am with you, do not fear. And what does he say in the end? Look, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will bring all of the treasures of all the nations to you. I'm going to do this. Right? You're worried about finances. You're worried about what you need. You're worried about all the stuff. Just get to work. I will bring in what you need because all of the silver is mine. All the gold is mine. I have control, sovereign control over everything in this world. I'm not asking you to worry about the provision. I'm just asking you to trust me in the process and get to work. Be confident in who you are. Be confident in whose you are. Be confident in me. I will take care of it. God's people have hope and peace because God is with his people. The sovereign creator of the universe dwells in your heart. And I don't think we realize that or take that into account in our daily life very often. We walk around allowing the enemy to trick us into thinking that we hold identities that are not part of who we are. It's always... It's oftentimes proclaimed, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Now, that is true in a moment, but that is not true as a believer. And you may think I'm speaking something untrue, but it is not. Look through your Bible. Look at all the times Paul addresses his letters to the saints that are in so Ephesus, to the saints that are in Colossae, to the holy ones, you are righteous. You are loved. You are adopted. You are children of the Most High God. Amen. Inheritors of, of all of His promise. You are redeemed. And the fact that you act like it does not change the reality of the identity that you have. So be confident. This is the lie that our society continually tries to feed us. I am what I do. It's not true. I am not what I do. I am what God calls me to be. 
And then he works underneath me to shape me into being what he's already called me to be until he brings me home. And he is working in me to finish the work that he started in me, but it is finished in his eyes because he said it to be. And at some point, we have to determine whose word are we going to believe? My own thoughts about myself or God's words about me? My own perception of current state of events and reality or God's determination of what he's going to do through it? A couple weeks ago, I mentioned Psalm 23. We all know this, right? Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That's a picture of, of paradise, right? Life as it should be. It's awesome. Rest, peace, joy. But then what else happens in that psalm? Here, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God is with me in the peaceful times and he is with me in the dark times. And all of it, I am safe and secure because why? He is with me. He is working in me. He's equipping me and he has plans and work for me to do that he will ensure that happens. I'm safe. I'm secure. I am loved. I am hopeful. I am peace filled because of his peace. just find it extremely interesting here at the end of, this, end of this verse how God's word not only was fulfilled in a literal sense, but it is speaking to a spiritual sense at the same time. Right? We know that this temple, Zerubbabel's temple, temple Zerubbabel, blah, 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 whatever, <laughs> was completed in four years after they started. But we don't know the dimensions of it. We don't have a single account for that. And there's this terminology in history called the Second Temple Period, which contains both Zerubbabel's temple and Herod the Great's temple, which are different. Because Herod the Great came in and renovated the place. Went old Magnolia Homes all over it. (laughs) And, And it's amazing when you start looking at what he did in light of what this passage says, the original flat place of the Temple Mount, right? This is on a mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, was about 17 acres at Solomon's time. So those found, you can assume those foundations are about the same for Zerubbabel. Herod is this megalomaniac who wants to leave his mark on the word, on the world. That's why he's called Herod the Great. There's not very many greats in history, right? Alexander the Great, Herod the Great. There's probably another great, Ivan the Great. I don't know. I don't know. There's not very many of them. Someone knows another great. No. Tom Brady the Great? Yeah. Tom Brady the Great. Yeah. But they call him a goat for some reason. Yeah. Um, But Herod comes up and he just goes through the land of Israel and he he exerts his authority on the land. 
He goes all over it, right? So his, he, he builds an amphitheater that faces Rome, and he puts a palace in the water. He builds a harbor where there is no harbor so that ships can come in. And not only does that, he puts his palace out into the water, and then in the salt water, he creates a freshwater pool. And this is in like 60s B.C., not only does he do that, but he takes a place where he won a, a, an amazing battle. It was a flat plain. It's outside of Bethlehem. You could go visit there right now. And he turned it into a mountain. He actually was later buried there because he had this thing for the Egyptians. He turned it into a literal mountain and it became his summer or winter palace with a steam room, all, all sorts of crazy stuff. He goes into the desert and Masada. He puts an eight, a million-gallon cistern in a place that has two inches of annual rainfall a year, and he has fruit trees growing on top of it, and a Roman bathhouse on the top of it. And he goes to Jerusalem, and he creates one of the wonders of the world at that time. He takes this 17-acre platform mountain, and he turns it, he doubles it to 36 acres. We still don't know how he moved the foundational stones to uphold that temple complex. Tons and tons and tons of weight, these massive, like 24 feet long, solid blocks of limestone moved into place. And he and expands it, he he expands the temple. He relines it with gold and beauty and all this stuff. And what is he unknowingly doing? Exactly what God wanted done. This man who, he, he thought he was a God. This is the man who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And didn't but ended up killing hundreds of kids. Absolutely wicked. He killed his own son because he was threatened that his son would take over his throne. This dude is deluded. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And in a very real way, God brought in the silver and the gold from the nations to his temple. But that was just a shadow of what he was wanting to do. Because the real temple was not something built of wood and stone and precious metals. The real temple that God wanted to build was people. People. Redeemed out of death and into life. People being molded and shaped into beautiful, precious metals. People who would gather and showcase again the accurate picture of who God is in the world. And God did it. In that place, I will give peace declares the Lord. 
And in that place, he did. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether in earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I don't know what's in front of you or what's before you. I don't know what the Lord is calling you to, but I do know that we are in an opportune time in history. There is a temptation to look back and say, man, I wish things were the way they were before. But that decision is going to leave you in misery. God does not call us to live back in other times. God has created you for this day and this age and this time for this purpose. To glorify his name among the nations. We are all called to build God's temple. Do you guys know that? Every single one of us. It's interesting to me that in the first temple, Solomon was charged to build a temple. And the first time Joshua came into the land, it wasn't the people that he was calling to be strong and courageous. It was Joshua he was called to be strong and courageous. The leader to be strong and courageous. What does God say here? Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all of the remnant be strong and courageous. We are a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2. Nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you have a degree in seminary. Once you know enough. No, it doesn't say that. Proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Every one of us are called to do that. In our workplace, with our families, with our kids. Wherever the Lord has you. And I think it's just simple, it's easy to look and go, man, this is just, I, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not trained. I'm not, I, don't, I don't know. How can I be useful of the Lord? And all those questions are normal questions, but all those questions are not the right questions. Lord, what do you want for me? What would you have me do? Where are you leading me and how are you going to expand your kingdom through me? Because I know my brokenness. I know I got a hot temper or a greedy eye. You know the relationships that I've broken in the past and the people who are not going to take me seriously. Yep, I know all those things. Be strong, courageous, get to work. It's what he's designed you for. Look, I just want to, I'm going to bring us back to a passage and then we're going to close and we're going to take communion here. 
since we were talking about the Reformation, Ephesians 2, verse 4, God says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast, for we are his workmanship. Literally, poema is the Greek term there. We are his poem. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. God has been doing amazing things in the past. I mean, the Reformation was awesome. God gave the word, his word, back to his people. God is doing amazing things now. And I've heard it said, and it stuck with me, and I think it may be true what the Lord's doing, because just like he gave the word back to his people in the first Reformation, the second Reformation is giving the work back to his people. That we would be empowered people, trusting him, depending on him, resting on him, trusting him to do what he's asked us to do. That our reliance would not be on our capability, but his absolute provision. That our reliance would not be on how well we can construct an argument, but just simply speaking of what he's done in our life. That we would get in his word, that we would read it, and that we would look for a place to share what we've learned for ourselves. And that the latter glory, not only in this church, but in his church, would be far greater than the glory that was. He's able. And so right now, we're going to transition. We take communion once a month.